This podcast is sponsored by What They Believe series, a docu-series exploring faith through conversations. If your congregation would like to share your history and spirituality, go to whatthebelieveseries.com to find out how you can participate. Visit now to find new episodes and learn about supporting this project. The views and opinions expressed during Eye on the Triangle do not represent WKNC or the student media. Your dial is currently tuned to Eye on the Triangle at WKNC 88.1. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Clink with WKNC 88.1's Eye on the Triangle, and I'm currently speaking with Aaron Sanchez-Guerra and Julia Wall, a journalist and photojournalist, respectively, for the News and Observer. Aaron is also a technician alum from NC State. How are all you doing? Doing pretty good today. A little tired? Same. Yeah, I'm doing well today, thankfully. Welcome to Eye on the Triangle, everybody. Now, we are here to talk about what is currently happening across the nation. Protests against police violence, which has happened from coast to coast. Now, I know that both of you were on the scene in Raleigh. What occurred there? Can you give us an overview of protests in the wake of shootings by police? So I arrived late to the event, so I didn't arrive until the tear gas had already been deployed. But before that happened, and Aaron can speak more to this because he was there, there were speakers, there were clergy members, there was some marching around and chanting and demonstrations, as you've seen at a lot of the other protests that have happened since. And it seems to me, based on what another photojournalist said, that once folks started to try and get into the parking deck where the sheriffs are and the Sallyport entrance to the parking deck where sheriffs were, that was when the first round of tear gas was deployed from what I could tell from other journalists. And like I said, Aaron can speak more to what happened in the couple of hours leading up to that. It sort of roughly started at five o'clock. There were well over a thousand people downtown, very peaceful. You know, it was so peaceful to the point that a more angrier section of the crowd, they tried to start a chant that involved cursing the police and it didn't really catch on because people, they didn't want to chant that there were children there. And they started marching like around six, not an hour after they started marching and very, very long march that like went eventually split into different parts of downtown Raleigh. It was the South Salisbury Street that some protesters, according to our photojournalist Travis Long, who was on the scene, were throwing water bottles and cursing out some police officers inside Wake County Sheriff's Office building parking deck. They threw some water bottles and they were cursing at them. And But by this point, hundreds and hundreds of riot police were already ready for action. Even while an hour before anything started, the Raleigh Police Department was already standing on the streets and, and stand guard. And, and they started throwing out tear gas. They started pepper spray to disperse crowds. Our photojournalist Travis Long was attacked with both of those things. And I climbed to the top of a parking deck overlooking West Davy Street and South McDowell, I believe, at the intersection. And I was able to get a bird's eye view of so many people that were running away from police already because they were dispersing tear gas. It was still broad daylight. It quickly got violent, even though it started so peacefully. A lot of people were perplexed and I think more uh, more panicked than, than anything else very early on into the protests on Saturday. So were the police holding lines and then individuals started throwing water bottles at them and the police advanced? Or what exactly happened? What was the progression of events there? 
like I said, I wasn't there at that moment in time, but from the footage that I saw, it was maybe in advance of protesters into the area and then the lines and the tear gas started. And from that point on, there were a lot of lines held by the riot gear police throughout the evening. When I arrived on the scene, there were lines being held around the mounted cops on horseback because they were also out. And they kind of got shaken up when the tear gas started flying. And if you've ever been around a horse that's trying to get away from something, it's, it's not a safe thing at all. There were a lot of lines held after that. But once the tear gas flew the first time, then the lines started being held. And there's always a group of folks who are willing to go up to the line and stand at the line and chant at the officers and try to communicate with them. And then water bottles start flying from the back of the crowd or whatever projectiles you can't necessarily see who's doing that because we're usually at the line. And then that's when the tear gas starts flying again. So it seemed like that initial scenario where they were trying to get into the parking deck sparked everything. And then that formation mm -hmm. of a line, the confrontation, the projectiles, and then more tear gas, foam bullets or sponge grenades, as we found they're called. The progression of that approach throughout the night happened. And, and I'll add, Aaron, that by the time this happened, Many people, hundreds of people left the march, majority of them, people with families, very vulnerable people and peaceful people, people who wanted obviously no part in uh, instigating the police or getting attacked by them in any way. So the people who remained downtown by that point were a largely younger crowd of adults and people who were willing to take on the police. And it was this crowd that remained downtown for hours and hours, slowly getting more agitated and more agitated. By the time it got darker, things got worse. So this brings me to a very important question. You've mentioned tear gas, you've mentioned foam bullets or foam grenades, and you've mentioned individuals throwing water bottles at the cops. This kind of technology is often referred to as less than lethal, it being a preferable alternative to actual bullets or deadly force. But what does a less than lethal response look like? How exactly did police deter and disperse gathered protesters? From my perspective, it seems like they wait for provocation before they deploy, but then as things continue to progress, to me it became unclear throughout the night why certain things were being deployed, flashbangs and whatnot as well. But I think what that looks like, or, or and then what it looked like subsequently on Sunday was the crowd starts doing something that the cops feel the need to control, and so they either respond with smoke bombs first or tear gas, and then the foam bullets or the rubber bullets, they, from what I saw, were shot as the smoke was very much present. So to me, that less than lethal approach leaves a lot of room for error because they can't see where they're aiming when they're deploying those less than lethal options as the smoke is rising and you can't see into the crowd. I saw one person get hit by one of them in front of me on Sunday. And luckily it was as he was turning away and he was kind of a tall person and it hit him in the side. I think that idea of deploying those less than lethal rounds as the tear gas is flying to me, doesn't necessarily <laughs> lead to like the safest way to disperse a crowd. Everything that I saw was, between quotes, less than, than lethal. For and, sure, second that. <laughs> yeah, what was used on me and protesters was, uh, was tear gas, which according to our reporting at the News and Observer, Raleigh Police Department, use of force ethics, a warning, a clear warning must be given before this is used. And I was able to capture on video the opposite of that. I was recording a video of very, very large amount of protesters that had marched in front of a barricade of police. Protesters were just sort of standing down police. Uh, nothing was being thrown. There was music playing. There were some people dancing. That's in the video I got. And at the end of the video, you can see a police officer throw a tear grass grenade just out of the blue. No warning whatsoever, which, of course, you know, 
sent everybody into chaos, screaming and yelling and pushing. And when that happened, and you can see it in the video, when it's throwing, when it's in midair, nobody says anything. When it, once it actually hits the ground, then everybody sprung into action. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't know where to go. I was just trying not to get crushed by all the people who were running. And uh, I, got, I got elbowed in the ribs in, in, in one of those moments, but I, I, I ran to a, an open part of the street to get away. And I was, to me, I just understood that this is how it worked. That was potentially a, a violation of their ethics. And I'll add that our photojournalist, Ethan Hyman, who was on the ground, he was hit by uh, a rubber bullet or was like a sponge grenade in the stomach while shooting some video. And I don't know at what distance he was shot with that. Sponge grenades come with instructions that they must be shot from at least 30 meters. And he's okay, by the way. <laughs> and he, he's okay. He lived to tell the tale. Yeah, especially since these less than lethal weapons can actually hit with lethal force at times. You got hit in the temple with one of these things. People have lost eyes. People have had throat injuries. It's not pretty. I mean, it's less than lethal, but it's not pretty. I've seen reports of individuals hit in the fingers while putting their hands up and the damage that can do to tendons in the hand and wrist. For some of them, it's unclear if they're going to get a lot of their control back in those limbs. All of you are journalists, but all of you are taking tear gas and sponge grenades and rubber bullets like everybody else is out there. Do police differentiate at all between how they treat reporters, journalists, and how they treat protesters who are on the field? Well, here, if you're on the line, you are going to be pushed back no matter who you are once they start pushing people back. I've been shoved by police. I've had people, not in, in this instance, but at Chapel Hill, I've had people grab my monopod to try and push me back. But I've never been detained or anything like that, like other protesters have been as well, but they don't usually detain people on the line or at least they didn't that night, but I've seen that happen across the country. We're fortunate enough to not have faced that scenario here yet, but I no, I don't think that they differentiate that much in the moment. I mean, our cameras are, all, especially after, after dark, um, you know, my cameras are dark, my equipment is dark, my badge is small, I wear a lanyard around my neck, which is also not super safe, but yeah, I think in the, in the heat of the moment, I've not been detained or assaulted, but definitely not treated as if exempt from whatever could happen. I think that given that the photojournalists, and, and I'll be uh, clear about this, they, they bore the brunt of the police use of force in covering this. Print reporters, given that we're not taking as many photos or video, you know, we can maintain our distance better. And you're firing sponge grenades, rubber bullets, tear gas in the dark to a running crowd of yelling people. That is being done, of course, with the risk of damaging everybody who is in there. Because then police have the very difficult job of differentiating journalists from protesters which is hard to do. And they also have the job of differentiating who looks vulnerable and who doesn't. On South Salisbury Street on Saturday night, I walked into a wave of invisible tear gas and I was, my eyes were burning and I couldn't really breathe well. So I ran inside of the Sheraton Hotel for shelter so I could flush my face with some uh, water with uh, baking soda that I had. And a group of protesters, they ran inside because they too were taking shelter. And there was a 14-year-old girl there who was asthmatic and, and she was there with her mom and, you know, and she was freaking out. She got tear gas and she visibly, she looked like a child. And so the police also had to take into account that they may potentially, and did, harm children. This is, of course, police responding to protesters, responding to folks being unruly, but this is also a blanket use of force. This is not discriminatory. Uh, they don't usually choose their targets, is what you're describing. Yeah, basically. I mean, I can't say for sure because I'm not in their head, but I mean, seeing them deploy tear gas and then also shoot rubber bullets or foam bullets or whatever we're calling them at the same time, to me, seems like, yeah, it's just a blanket response. 
Visibility is low, tear gas is occluding vision, and they're firing through both the darkness and also the gas. And Aaron, I'll note that I'm thankfully it was not the case here in Raleigh where we really saw some blatant use of force against clearly identified journalists, as we have seen in the rest of the nation in New York City. Various, various reporters caught on camera what they experienced. They were more or less attacked and assaulted by New York police, even when clearly identifying that they were members of the press and not just in New York City, but in, out on the West Coast in Minnesota. And it's very nationwide. We didn't experience anything on that scale here in, in Raleigh or Durham, to our knowledge. We definitely are wary that it's been happening in other parts of the nation. Anything else you want to add on what you saw out there? How did protesters attempt to escape? How did things eventually disperse? You mentioned you had a bird's eye view of everyone fleeing from the police. Did you see police attempt to block escape? Or did you see protesters attempt to reform any lines? Or was it just a full route of protesters? The organization of the protesters deteriorated throughout the rest of the night. During the daytime, you could see very clear lines of protesters. Almost for various barricades of police, there was a group of protesters in front of them, confronting them more or less, as their tactics got more and more violent. Everybody's just kind of scrambling. And so when I had the bird's eye view, I could see various people running, going back to where they were and keeping their place. You know, at night, when I did come out of that Sheraton hotel that I was taking shelter in, and I come out to a, a crowd of just people all over the place, I hear Aaron and I see my colleague, uh, Lucille Sherman, a reporter who was on the ground. We had been looking for each other and, and we said, hey, let's go back to the office. And I think seconds after we said that, we hear explosions down the street. Then we hear screams and we see people running for their lives toward our direction. We have no choice but to run with them. At the end of the street, and this was Fayetteville Street, I guess more tear gas had been deployed, smoke bombs, flashbangs, what have you. While I didn't see it myself, you had to run completely away from one direction on one street. But on the other end of the street, there was also, you know, police officers there. As far as our reporting goes, we didn't witness, quote unquote, trapping of protesters. Or kettling, yeah. Yeah, or kettling, as was covered and exposed and shown in downtown Charlotte, which I believe was the following Monday. There was a group of protesters that was trapped or kettled inside a parking garage, and they were cut off from both directions by Mecklenburg Police Department, who were using tear gas, shooting pepper balls from above. And that's not hearsay. This is reported by the Charlotte Observer. A siege, then. The protesters seemed to paint it that way. Julia, you said that you were uh, in the tail end, so you probably saw plenty of this as well, correct? Yes, I did. And I also wanted to add that right before the first tear gassing that I experienced after I got there and got on the ground, the protesters moved in a direction that then they moved up Salisbury Street towards the back of where the convention center and the riot police came up the Cabarrus Street kind of up towards the convention center and, and they kind of met right on the corner there and they ended up deploying tear gas, I assume because people were throwing water bottles right there at the corner of the convention center. And right before that, people had pushed this group of officers in uniform, not in riot gear, that were surveying the scene. They kind of had their backs against the building and were just using that as an opportunity to vent. There were people yelling about my cousin, my nephew, my, my friend, you know, you, you killed them. There was so much pain and frustration coming out grief coming out of these officers and then I was and most of them say nothing back they just kind of stand there and take it which makes people even more upset because they want and need some sort of response I don't know if they're instructed not to respond or not but there was one officer that was having a conversation with one of the protesters and they both discovered in the course of that short conversation that they were both veterans and he said thank you for your service to this woman and she said Thank you for saying that, but nobody asks me that or says anything about my service when they pat me down or when I'm suspected of such and such. It was a very raw conversation between two veterans 
one white, one black and a woman. And then all kind of chaos broke loose after that. People turned around and saw the riot gear approaching. And so the, the dynamic kind of turned and I wasn't able to catch up with that woman afterwards. But there were some really raw emotions coming out between the officers and the protesters in between these hold the line moments that were more sensational moments. There was a lot going on emotionally on the ground there as well in between the kind of big moments there was a lot of nuance there and people kind of unloading their pain in this scenario so glad you used that word we hear a lot of the anger that protesters feel the indignation the long-standing suffering but a lot of this is motivated by pain and grief by people who simply don't have answers for the world in which they live Mm -hmm. When you're standing on those lines and listening to these conversations, you can see and feel that. And it's difficult to document because it is so loud and chaotic. And just from a technical standpoint, it's difficult to gather that kind of audio. But it definitely happens. It's easy to paint protesters as a single entity because all of them are moving in one direction and behaving as one. But these are all individuals with their own histories and stories and different ways they've been affected by police presence. Exactly. And I think what happened Saturday and what people who tried to write these protests off once property destruction happens is that these are folks who come from communities who are over-policed or who have a really large police presence. And their perspective is far different from people who want to engage with this kind of stuff for the first time or people who are watching it and thinking their own personal feelings about what's going on. There's a lot being unloaded in those scenarios from people that are real and valid feelings. Aaron, did you have any kind of incidents of this where you saw, I guess, how individuals stood out from the crowd? That was going on all over at many times in the night and throughout the day on Saturday, because I'll note that the only two days that riot police were clearly deployed in downtown Raleigh was Saturday and Sunday, May 30th and 31st. So it was on those two days that those things happened. And they even know that the police are under instructions to not engage verbally. But even then, they witnessed various people, many of them Black, speak to Black officers about their experience and trying to appeal to them, really share these very impactful, emotional statements, and some of them some very profane criticisms. And it's sort of a human attempt to express explicitly what protesters have to say. And that was happening at various points of the night. At one point on South Salisbury Street in the middle of the chaos, where there was still a group of protesters standing in front of a barricade of cops, one of them had a megaphone and was... They were yelling things at the police and sort of giving a speech for everybody, including police. I admired that they were still trying to have something of a civil conversation when downtown Raleigh looked like a war zone. So people aren't just there to make noise. They want to articulate arguments here. And one last thing I'll add is that there was also several instances of folks who were in the front with the cops, using megaphones, allowing people to come up and speak with them, protecting them and shielding them from that, who were actively trying to get people to stop throwing things and stop stop engaging in a way that was going to provoke them because it had already happened a few times. You just can't control a crowd, and especially when the people who are trying to get it to stop because they'll take the brunt of it are up front, projectiles come from the back. But there were definitely a lot of dissenting voices to the provocation. Just There was so much emotion and tensions were running so high. There was no one person in control and groups started kind of splitting off and things had already just gotten so haywire that folks just kind of did what they felt in the moment. But both of you have confirmed efforts by the protests, efforts by the marchers to control the message that was being portrayed and to control how emotions and, and even hostilities were being displayed towards the police. There was a lot of people just saying, please stop throwing things, stop throwing things. Not like, hey, you need to go or leave, just like, please stop throwing things. I heard that so many times. Today, we will be on our 12th consecutive day of protests. 
the protests have very much then turned into an arena of clashing narratives and objectives for these protests. And that's for a variety of reasons. And these are things that we have been witnessing as reporters. But the most common clashing narrative you'll see out there, Aaron, is just uh, whether to be quote-unquote peaceful or quote-unquote violent. And I want to place that in quotes because it's a subjective thing. Last Saturday, there were well over a thousand people downtown Raleigh again. But riot police were not deployed and things were not escalated for the necessity of any use of force, uh, remarkably. And while I was out there on the ground covering it just last Saturday, I was made aware of clashing narratives between the different organizers. Some activist groups deem other activist groups as too, quote unquote, cop friendly. And the others deem the other one as, as instigators of cops. I think while they're ultimately there for the same objective of bringing attention to police brutality nationally, the manners in which they want to go about that are contested at times. Yeah. And of course, we are often hearing that Black Lives Matter in comparison to the civil rights marches of the 60s is characterized by not being a centralized formation in the 60s. A lot of it was right around Martin Luther King Jr. and heads of these these protests and marches. But, but now we're having a lot of these groups kind of spring up as grassroots movements organized on social media and generally happening without centralized leadership in some cases. This may sound scary, but it is the result of all of these people seeing a fundamental problem with how policing is handled and all of them reacting as one as individuals together. So one side of that is going to be the narratives are going to differ. How individuals treat marching, what they see as protest, is going to change from person to person. Mm-hmm. I agree that at times it has become decentralized. However, we at the News Observer, we've been trying to be intentional about showing the centralized parts of the protests here in Raleigh. And so we've been naming specific organizations, what they've been doing, because while I, I can't speak to how centralized or decentralized protests in other states are. Here in Raleigh and the Triangle, I would argue that it is centralized. For example, yesterday there was a group of protesters that they were mostly younger college-age protesters and they were uh, brandishing a banner that said abolish the police with anti-police art on the banner. And they went to go protest outside of what they believe was the residence of Raleigh Mayor Marianne Baldwin's home. And I know that that's something that that specific group wanted to do. This is not something that another would like to do. Yeah, there's a competition now for narratives. And as reporters, we want to try for the general audience to differentiate and those narratives and factions when we can. I can't speak to that as much because I haven't been, I covered some protests throughout last week, but I have not covered as much of the shaking out of all of the movements that are starting to form. And by that, the different organizations that are starting to kind of emerge from this as people get their feet under them and and decide how to move forward through this and into this movement and with it. And I think what I'm seeing is both organization and spontaneity and fluidity. I mean, there's a lot of folks who I've heard of, there's a demonstration at the Capitol and there's this other group that's over at the Capitol, but maybe they aren't as unified with that group. And so maybe they peel off or maybe they kind of get people going a different direction. And like I said, it's organized and it's spontaneous. And I think we'll continue to see more and more organization around specific groups, but there are folks who are going to come out and kind of just go wherever the wind takes them. And that's fine too. And I think folks are just every night out there to make their statements heard. And however they feel they can best do that in that moment, whether it's about the mayor, whether there's been a lot of demonstration at the governor's mansion, a lot at the state capitol, at Moore Square, in these symbolic places. And it depends on which group is leading as to what's going to happen there. You know, tonight, three different demonstrations are happening. Last night was, I think, two. And they're kind of like occupying these bigger spaces because of the big crowds. But it depends on 
how people find out about them. There's so much of social media goes into this. It's, did you hear from a friend? Did you hear from this organization's Instagram post? Did you just see a flyer that doesn't have an organization attached to it? And it's all of it. And it's just, I think they decide where they're going to go and then kind of feel it out. And either the crowd sticks together and unifies around going to Marion Baldwin's house or marching to the governor's mansion. And depending on which group is leading what march, People either stick together or they kind of start doing their own thing. But what I've seen in the past week or so, people have stuck together around the folks who organized the particular event that they attended. Yes. And to clarify for our listening audience, decentralization does not equate to anarchy. The message that everyone is sharing is broadly the same from group to group. Decentralization just means there's no leader at the tip of the rally that everyone is following behind, at least not moment to moment. Certainly. And that's happened as well as some organizations happened. I mean, the, the two nights ago, NC Born, a, a new group that I that is, is, is kind of just emerging, held a vigil for family members of people who've been killed by Raleigh police. And then they took that vigil and placed their flowers and their signs and their candles at the governor's mansion. They went straight from Moore Square to the governor's mansion and back and then dispersed. And they were all kind of led by the same group of people. It's all of it. All of the above. During times of unrest, there is a theme of opposing, sometimes confusing narratives. For example, officers have been repeatedly recorded kneeling before protesters, at times trying to defuse the situation, and at times as a prelude to an attack on protesters. Did you see any of this tactic, and what are your thoughts on it? I have personally not seen it. I know that we ran a paper last week where on the front page we used a photo from a reporter of an officer of the state capitol police kneeling and shaking someone's hand. From what I heard reported about that instance, the protesters were asking them to kneel with them, and then they did. And it was an emotional, symbolic thing in which a couple of the protesters who had been asking went up and were hugging some of the officers and thanking them. And so it was kind of a protester-led movement. But after that, it was in the same week where these images were starting to come out from across the country. And since then, we've seen that those same police departments who are kneeling at the same time are using force during these protests. So I think it's like all of the above. I think it depends on the individual involved. These images in the age of social media, especially, everything becomes a trend. So I can't speak to who is doing it because they've seen other departments doing it or like something that happened at the state capitol felt more organic and more genuine because the protesters had been specifically asking for them to do it. I think it quickly became what people are calling quote unquote copaganda and that as things spread across the country, it's hard to tell whether or not any one officer or department is actually doing that because they felt compelled to or because they'd seen other people do it and it was a way to calm crowds or placate them. But I think the overwhelming response that I've seen in my circles is, okay, cool and all, but like, that's not enough. The sheriff of Hope County spoke at George Floyd's memorial in Hope County on Saturday, and he was at the pulpit saying, I don't care if you're kneeling or playing with the children, or I don't care what you're doing. If you can't admit that we're part of the problem, I don't care if you're kneeling. And that was from the Hope County Sheriff, who's also a Black man. You know, I, I can't speak to individuals' intentions because I don't know them, but I would be weary of things that are trending on social media being used to quell people who might otherwise be more agitated at you during a demonstration. And it seems to not actually speak to the objective of the protesters in many cases. They're appreciative, but only as far as that moment goes. Right, right. And I think also there is this, you know, without going too far down a rabbit hole, there is this need for positive images and positive news right now that people are all too willing to consume during times like this. And so 
when you start seeing people fist bumping the cops or shaking their hands or they're kneeling or they're praying together. Those are powerful moments that fall short in meaning in the long run. If the departments aren't actually meeting the demands of the protesters, then those actions are inherently hollow. With how you can cut a narrative, I've seen a couple of compilations on Facebook and Twitter of police and protesters getting along, but we often miss a lot of details between the cuts as one image flows to another in various parts of the country. Yes, definitely true. Certainly. As protesters, we really only see what they are taking pictures and uploading videos of, and they've certainly been doing quite a lot of that to capture what's been going on. I mean, the thing is, we have to take into account that while there are many people sharing videos of police taking knees and hugging protesters, and while we're seeing that people are sharing that on social media and and saying this is propaganda, this is a bunch of lies, they're fooling you, at the same time, the people who originally took photos and videos of that were people who cared and supported the situation. As Julia said, I'll echo, people here in Raleigh, they wanted to take photos with police. They wanted them to kneel with them. They wanted them to march with them. I witnessed last Saturday protesters willingly taking photos with white policemen, photos with National Guardsmen, and fist bumping them, dapping them up, that sort of thing. And the thing is, protesters, that's one of those disagreements. Some protesters are like, hey, what are you doing? Don't shake the policeman's hand. If a protester wants to do it, I mean, they're going to do it. They have different views on this. I think we just all have to be very weary of what things look like on face value, and that is not just related to everything that we see and consume and all the millions of images we see online. And again, I can't speak for individuals' intentions, but at the end of the day, there's always going to be a resounding, hey, you know, that's a lot of talk and not a lot of walk. I agree with Julia. I think that's the biggest concern from protesters. They want to see these friendly actions from police followed up by policy demands and other things. Moving on to the headline topic of last month, with SARS-CoV-2, a present threat globally, how do individuals navigate the need to remain safe, socially distance, maintain herd immunity, and avoid infections from SARS, with also a current and present need to demonstrate and engage with injustice? Is the risks of SARS viewed almost indistinguishable from the risks of facing police violence or facing opposition while out there marching? How do people square these two concepts, and how do people keep themselves safe? I'll tell you this much, because I think I echo the protesting crowds, is that Saturday, the first day of the protests, it was for the first time during the pandemic that I just, I completely forgot that there was a global pandemic of COVID-19. I just forgot. I was around so many people. Everybody was hugging and touching one another. When somebody was teary-ass in the face and a crowd formed to care for this person, and in that moment, they're not thinking about that. I certainly wasn't. But at the same time, these protests look different than all the other police brutality protests in the past in that a lot of people are wearing masks and gloves, police officers are wearing masks, and many protesters, despite the risk of COVID-19, they want to exercise their constitutional rights. As we saw weeks ago with reopen and see protests, hundreds and thousands came out here in North Carolina to exercise their First Amendment right, which they deemed more important than the risk of COVID-19. Majority of them did not wear masks. As opposed to these police brutality protests, a majority do wear masks. They are visibly wary of the virus as opposed to these other protesters. From what I've seen, you know, like most folks that I communicate with, I notice the absence of some folks. There are a lot of people who are immunocompromised or live with loved ones who are immunocompromised and they have found other ways to be helpful, whether it's supply drops or helping monitor Twitter feeds and stuff like that. But on the ground, 
folks are wearing masks. Depends on the scenario, whether or not there's a lot of social distancing. The first Saturday night, like Aaron said, I, I basically forgot that COVID-19 was a thing, especially when blowing snot out of my nose on the sidewalk because I got tear gassed and somebody else walking up and helping me or I'm squirting water in their eyes or vice versa. And that kind of was a free for all because people were fearful. And also I've read articles since then that tear gas is really corrosive for the respiratory system and puts people at higher risk for complications if they do contract COVID-19. That is something that I think people realize and after the fact. And people are just doing what's best for themselves. I've seen plenty of folks hang back. And when there's things at the Capitol, there's a big lawn. People can still hear and see what's going on and hang around and not be close to people. And I've seen a lot of that as well. It's just hard for me to really gauge what other people are doing when I'm trying to be in in the thick of whatever is happening. You know, I have friends who have gone to and have heard and seen events where people can line up in their cars or there's events specifically designated for like vehicle protest. And then also during these events, people would just circle the Capitol in their cars and hang out the windows and honk their horns and cheer in solidarity with people. And there are definitely workarounds to keep people away from the crowds. And I think people have just been doing whatever is best for them. And the folks who are maybe not as concerned about it are the ones who are really not necessarily observing those restrictions that we've been putting on ourselves throughout this pandemic. And, you know, people... Luckily, a gas mask or a respirator doubles as a pretty effective way to to keep your own germs in and protect yourself from tear gas. So there were a lot of respirators out there. I was wearing one. I think it's just one of those things that hopefully nobody gets sick from it. But if the numbers do go up, depending on how the pandemic continues to play out throughout the year, people are very adamant that despite this, it is important enough to them to protest police brutality that they will be out there every day. It worries me to see microphones get passed around, but it's up to everyone's individual risk assessment for themselves as to whether or not they can be out. But voices still need to be heard, of course. That's the idea, despite this risk to everyone. Right. I think that's, you know, a driving factor behind it is that we still need to be heard. We're not going to be drowned out by whether or not we think we should be out here because of the pandemic. And I think it coinciding with the state starting to reopen. I do wonder if this had happened two months before, like, If this had happened when COVID-19 was really kind of becoming a big thought on all of our minds, how different it would have been were we not already in reopening phases when this occurred. And I don't know the answer to that, obviously. Of course, of course, yeah. I don't think anybody really can. I want to ask both of you, uh, what is next for protesters? What is next for journalists? What are your anxieties and hopes for the weeks to come? So I think what's next for protesters, from what I can tell, is getting their demands met on a local level. So working around demanding from the governor, demanding from the police chief, demanding from the mayor, a whole separate city with a whole separate local government and a whole separate organizing community um, that have been organizing around police in their community for years. Here, I think it's there are several cases and instances of people losing their lives to police violence here that are very unresolved. And the event that I went to the other night had family members of people like Keith Collins, Sohail Mujarid, whose family is now suing, I believe, the city because of the evidence report from his killing. There's just a lot of open wounds that organizers and individual groups are kind of targeting for resolve in regards to we need action, we need lawful action against officers or investigations or anything, convictions. That's what they want. And then there are a lot of people who want to defund or abolish or, you know, that huge, the huge conversation that we're having nationally right now about how to move into community policing and whether or not cities will even be willing to adopt that. So I think that 
there are definitely people that are going to continue to be out there that are demanding justice for families locally. And that is a grassroots way to to focus on things here. I think that's their next step is how do we get, how do folks get RPD to meet their demands for the families that are still hurting and also to prevent further future violence? I think I echo what Julia said. I think that's our informed perspective and prediction on on these protests as journalists. And, you know, and um, what we know for sure is that we're going to continue to cover it through many avenues and we're going to continue doing it fairly and uh, listening to what our audiences have to say. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for coming on to Eye in the Triangle with me. Thank you for having us. It's, it's been a pleasure, Aaron. I'm Aaron Kling with WKNC 88.1's Eye in the Triangle. I was just speaking with Aaron Sanchez-Guerra and Julia Wall, a journalist and photojournalist for the News Observer. Take it easy, folks.